Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today City Council is debating whether they should build a new arena at Limeridge Mall. Elizabeth May says that her party won't support any minority government due to their climate plans. And there's also an NDP exodus going on in New Brunswick. And Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, has lost a critical vote yesterday involving Brexit and is now calling for an election. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. So where are they going to play the good old hockey game? Uh, is it going to continue to be at First Ontario Centre or that particular neighbourhood? Or possibly at Lime Ridge Mall? Well, last week, of course, you heard uh, Bulldogs owner Michael Andelar on our program. And uh, Michael was uh, explaining about his proposal uh, and a partnership that he's developed with Cadillac Fairview, the people that own Lime Ridge Mall, to actually build an arena right in the mall, right there beside the mall, the old Sears location, obviously, since that's been vacant for some time now. Uh, and it's uh, some, and it's an idea that a lot of people have got some some pretty decent ideas about. It. And you, know, you talk about the logistics of this, but uh, well, they're going before city council today. And uh, as Scott Radley writes in the Hamilton Spectator today, uh, he hopes the arena debate is not going to become another stadium or LRT fight. Uh, Scott Radley, of course, is also the host of the Scott Radley Show, which uh, you hear every weeknight at six o'clock, and uh, you can hear him right now on the Bill Keller Show. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm great, Bill. How are you? Excellent piece today in the and the spec. Uh, and uh, to answer your question, yeah, it probably will be as controversial and as divisive. <laughs> Come on, we're talking about Hamilton I, I City Council to, here, Scott. I, I hate to think so, but um, I was writing it more with optimism and hope than, and maybe a little naivete than with uh, reality, but l- let's hope anyway. Well, there's no room for that kind of hope when we get into these things. Too. <laughs> I, 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 listen, I... I I've known Michael for a long time, as you have, and uh, and he's a very pragmatic guy, uh, but he's a, a guy, a very successful guy, too, uh, in his endeavors, not just with his hockey team, but obviously with his businesses as well. Uh, he's a Montreal Canadiens part owner, but I don't hold that against him to any great extent. But he's a guy that has a pretty good vision of what needs to be done here. Uh, I would like to think that City Council will give this some serious consideration, but I'm not so sure that they're going to. Bill, I think there's a point here, before we even start talking about this, that's important to set as the baseline, because I've heard a number of people already, as I've been writing the pieces the last week or so, saying, look, we don't want to be spending taxpayers' money on an arena. We have other important things to spend money on. And and I hear that, and I agree with that. We have a lot of things. This city is not flush with cash. Here's the problem with that argument. The report that the city commission from Ernst & Young to look into what's going to happen with this arena, with First Ontario and the future and whatever else. I've read through it now. It's 130 pages. I've read through it twice plus, And when I say plus, because I've gone over other parts multiple times, that I can see in there, there is no option for not spending any taxpayer money. First Ontario Centre in the next five years, according to the report, is going to need $42.3 million just to keep operating basically as it is. And a new place is obviously going to cost money as well. So just as a, because this, this keeps coming back, why are you talking about a new arena? We can't afford it. Money is going to have to be spent short of, I suppose the one option that no one's talking about would be just shutting First Ontario Place, First Ontario Centre down and not having an arena in town for anything at all. I guess that would be theoretically an option that would cost taxpayers no money. But otherwise... It's a discussion that is being had because there is no zero payment to the city game that I can see or that the report seems to point out. This is, uh, I, I know you drew the analogy of the stadium, and I, I don't want to get too deeply into that debate again, but 
we had the same arguments. Uh, you know, when there, there was this discussion about whether or not Hamilton should partner with the Pan Am Games bid that was going on at the time, and obviously the, the stadium was, was supposed to be the jewel that we were going to get out of that. Uh, but the the discussion by a lot of folks, as you recall, because you wrote about it at the time, was, ah, look, just leave Ivorwind the way it is. It's fine. It's fine. And, and technically, I guess it was, but it was going to require probably more money than, than we wanted to spend uh, to to rectify this and, and put it on. I mean, the old uh, lipstick on a pig argument kept coming up, and I think you can probably apply that to First Ontario Centre now, too. Well, Ivorwind was fine. If, again, you were going to spend money, you may recall that shortly before the end of Iverwind's life, there was a giant light standard that fell over. Uh, there were other things. You, you could not have, there was cement falling off. You could not have safely continued to play in Iverwind unless a significant amount of money was spent. So, yes, you're absolutely right. You could have upgraded or maintained Iverwind, but it wasn't a zero-dollar game. And the, the other comparison, where I thought actually we were going to go, because the other comparison which I think is, is apt here, is when the stadium was being built for the Pan Am Games, the one thing that Infrastructure Ontario and the Pan Am people and all the rest said was, we're only building you a stadium if you have an anchor tenant. And that gave the Tiger Cats an immense amount of power in the tug of war. Because if the Tiger Cats were leaving, there was no anchor tenant, therefore there was no stadium. In a sense, that's similar here. Because if you, the Ernst & Young report, when it taught, when all the figures that it goes through, and believe me, you, you've never seen math until you've gone into about the last 50 pages of this report. I mean, there's, there's physics equations and there's stuff. I don't even know what it's there for. I, I think they may have put a few pages in. They got lost from some sort of physics PhD process. But um, the fact is you need to have an anchor tenant for all those dates or all the numbers that Ernst & Young has gotten together fall apart. There is one big difference, though, and that is right now you have an owner of the Bulldogs who has said that he is willing to put up tens of millions of his own dollars up front into the construction of a new place, which was not the same as what it was with, with the stadium. And so it, it, I think it puts the city council in a slightly different position because you now have someone who is going to put right up front significant skin into the game for himself. And to me... While I don't think that Michael Anlauer is going to end up in the same position as the Ticats, he might, he might, but where he, where you've got people who are now fighting, you've got neighbors squabbling with neighbors about whether Bob Young is a good guy or a bad guy, I think that that kind of promise of that kind of money should at the very least buy Michael Anlauer a significant, a serious, a legitimate hearing at City Council about his proposal. Well, the other element to this, too, is Michael's been quite upfront about the idea that he's, he's willing to cut some checks here to, to try to get this thing yes. going. Uh, we don't know the extent of Cadillac Fairview's partnership either. Now, and Michael was rather hesitant when I asked him about that last week when he was on the program, uh, waiting until, as he said, it, you know, let's let's make the presentation in front of council first, and uh, as they should hear it. And and I, I see that. Okay, I can understand that to a certain extent. But we don't know if there's if they've got skin in the game or if their contribution is simply going to be the land. I'm not sure exactly how this is going to go. Uh, and we're not even sure what the city's uh, participation in this, even if they want to go down that road, how extensive that's going to be. But no matter what's going to happen here, Scott, as you point out in the piece, if you don't have private sector money involved in any of these projects, we're not going anywhere. 
Well, we may not be. I mean, who knows where we're going? And this is the, why I drew the LRT and stating debate. Who knows where we're going on this anyway? Because I know there are councillors who have said we are getting out of the arena game. We don't want to spend any money on this. And it got, that's why at the beginning I said what I said. I don't see in this Ernst & Young report the option that no money will be spent. So where you end up with now, it seems, Bill, and this is the next squabble that will inevitably, I believe, come from this, is the Ernst & Young report was, and you'll know the proper terminology, was the, what is it, the downtown strategic plan or the uh, whatever the city's downtown, the, the city has a downtown strategy. Yeah. And the Ernst & Young report was commissioned as part of that. So the only area that Ernst & Young was examining was an arena in the downtown. And so right now there are those who are insistent that the only place that we should even consider or talk about an arena would be in the downtown core. And in fact, and I'm unclear on this one right now, but I believe there was a council vote to that effect when this commission was, when this report was commissioned. I could be wrong, which, and you know this stuff better than I do, but if that's the case, I believe if you were going to undo that, you would probably need a two-thirds vote of council to say, no, no, we're now willing to look elsewhere in the city. So it becomes complicated, but it becomes a thing where you've got an owner of a team who says, here, I'm willing to put tens of millions of dollars, private sector money, into an arena, but here's where I would like you to consider it. And you have, I believe, some councillors who are going to say it must be unquestionably in the downtown, which is not where the owner has proposed it, which is where now, right off the bat from moment one, you're going to end up with your first dispute and debate and possibly fight around the council chambers about do we consider this even? Do we even give this proposal a hearing or do we say, no, it absolutely must be in the core and anything other than that is not even worth our time? Which is the stadium debate all over again. It's going to be and the West Harbor. Or, right? you know, and we, we almost lost the stadium as a result of that discussion and that debate. It does sound very familiar. Here's the, this is the thing that I, I, I'm trying to get my head around here, too, is I, I understand, uh, I mean, city council's propensity to say, oh, well, look, we wanted the stadium downtown, we want the arena to stay downtown, we want the entertainment uh, facilities to be downtown. I get all that. I, I understand. But, uh, I mean, it, when somebody comes along and says, look, I think I can help you out here, but you've got to give me some flexibility, and you've got a partner like Cadillac Fairview that's willing to be a partner in this, and who else, I don't even know who else is maybe involved in this. Michael... Uh, seem to hint that uh, that there could be more people that are going to come to the table as soon as council starts to get their head around this. But you know, when when I, Ernst and Young's report talks about downtown, as you mentioned, Scott, only because council asked them to study downtown, they didn't say look at all potential sources. And and council's got to, I think, take a bigger vision of this if they're going to be practical about it. There are, uh, and again, I've heard people say, look, uh, if you don't have it downtown, look at places like Ottawa and Glendale, Arizona, where they put the stadiums out in the way out in the suburbs, and they've been colossal failures. And Ottawa is now looking to move their a new arena downtown for the Senators. And the Arizona Coyotes are looking to get back into Phoenix. There is a difference, I think, between those. And it, I don't know if, if, this, if people agree with this or not around the council table, but Canada and Glendale are distant, distant, distant suburbs. This would be the equivalent of, remember once upon a time, now it's not the same anymore, but once upon a time when you drove out to Canada's Wonderland, there was nothing around Canada's Wonderland whatsoever. It was in the middle of nowhere. That's kind of what those arenas are like. Lime Ridge Mall is not in the middle of nowhere. It is a highly densely populated area. So 
it's a to me it's a bit of a red herring to say that Limeridge to put an arena in Limeridge is to go the disastrous suburban route that no one really wants to get to and that doesn't have a population base to support it. I'm not arguing for the Lime Ridge proposition because I haven't seen what the proposal is yet, but I'm arguing that if you're going to make the case that it's in the middle of nowhere, unlike the downtown, I think that is completely a fallacious argument to have. There's tons of people in that area that would be able to get there, even by foot, even if you don't want to use car or public transit. Have they not uh, done studies? I, I think you and I talked about this some months ago, because uh, I know the, the obviously the Bulldogs have done some marketing studies. And, and my understanding, if I recall from the study, I don't have it in front of me, is the, the majority of fans that actually attend Bulldogs games are, live on the mountain, do they not? I haven't seen the study. I've heard that, uh, and not just on the mountain, but I mean Ancaster, Dundas. Yeah, yeah, that area. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean on the upper, yeah, the upper escarpment, yeah. But, but people who presumably might be able to get to that very easily if you take the 403 and then the link and you're right there. And, you know, and the argument that um, public transit, well, it has to be on the LRT. Okay, uh, but you do have a bus, an LRT, not an LRT, a, uh, an HSR hub or whatever you want to call it, depot right at Lime Ridge Mall. It's yeah. not an area that doesn't have bus transit. It's not like somewhere you can't get. And there's, a, there's another very easy answer to this, I suppose, and that is, you know, we're always talking in this city about public transit. Well, it seems to me a pretty simple solution. If an arena was to go there, you don't say we can't put an arena there because there's no way to get there. If, you put, if an arena was going to go there, you say, we're going to increase public transit through that area, especially around game time. That, that doesn't seem like a, a, a very difficult or very complicated solution to a problem. But to me, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that becomes a veto argument that we can't do it because nobody can get to this place. L- well, lots of people, Bill, over the years have got to Lime Ridge Mall just fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and like I say, it has easy access, and it's, it's not out of the boonies, as some people would like to characterize it. Uh, to your point about LRT, though, it's rather interesting, because uh, I've heard at least one councillor say that, yeah, it's got to stay downtown by the LRT line. First of all, uh, City Council last year voted not to even put a stop, an LRT stop on Bay Street, which is where the arena currently is. So I, I, t- that, to me, is kind of a hollow argument because they've already decided, no, we don't really need to put a stop there. So people are still going to have to go past the arena and then have to walk back to it, uh, which may not sound like a burdensome thing to do. But, you know, if it's minus 15 out in the wintertime when, for a hockey game, they may just figure to heck with it. I'll just drive myself. I don't need to do that. So th- there's there's counter arguments to just about everything. And, and I'm not well, suggesting I'm at this stage that uh, I want to see council say, okay, that's right. We're going to scrap our idea about downtown. Let's build this thing on the, on the, the Lime Ridge Mall property. I, I just want them to listen. And, and consider this because, I mean, we, we have to start looking at alternatives. You know, uh, if we're in the dire financial straits that we are, and I, I don't dis- disagree that we are, then let's look at options instead of being narrow minded. I agree with you. And, and again, we, neither of us have seen the proposal. Uh, so it could be a tremendous proposal or it could be a terrible proposal. I have no idea. And so uh, that's exa- you're saying exactly what I'm saying. Let's at least keep an open mind to this. And, you know, for the LRT thing, just to go back for a second. If you're correct, and I've heard the same thing you have, that you know they say that the majority of people coming for Bulldogs, and for many of the concerts, are people who are coming from the suburban areas. Yeah, you've got the LRT that will connect and will run right to it, but it goes back to one of the initial questions about the LRT. For all these people from the suburbs and from elsewhere, where do they park when they want to get onto the LRT to even get downtown? They're still going to be driving their cars to that same area. The LRT becomes a 
kind of a secondary issue, it seems. And again, if that's the entire reason, if the LRT is the entire reason that you demand to have an arena downtown, that we need to bolster ridership for the LRT, it seems what you're saying right off the bat is we're really worried that the LRT numbers aren't going to be high enough and we need to do everything we can to make sure we put more people on the LRT rather than saying we now have an LRT to handle the demand that we need to move people around town. And so, uh, again, I, I just I don't see that LRT should be the driving force behind wherever you would put an arena. You put an arena in a place that makes the most sense to put an arena for all the reasons that you have an arena. And if the LRT is one of those, terrific. But if you can make a case that an, at an arena, and I'm not making that case, but I'm saying if you can make the case that an arena at Lime Ridge Mall or somewhere else makes more sense, has more benefits than one downtown, then it's goofy not to even contemplate that seriously. Uh, and that's a point well taken. I mean, we talked about that even during the LRT debate, which I guess in some people's minds is still going on. But I mean, for I mean for you, I mean, you know, if, if you're going to the game, either cover it or just go as a fan. You know, as you leave your palatial estate in Ancaster and you want to go to the Bulldogs game, uh, you're not going to drive down to the LRT line and find a place to park someplace and then take the LRT. You're going to figure I'm in the car. I may as well just drive downtown. But if you go to Lime Ridge Mall, uh, first of all, there's lots of parking there. Uh, and it's right on the link. So, I mean, it, it is accessible. So, that, that you know, you can make an arguments and counterarguments to everything here. The the only thing I, I would point, and I don't know all the details uh, except for what Michael has told you and to me over the last couple of weeks as he's talked about this, uh, and I'm sure there's going to be more details uh, at the council presentation. But this is a guy that doesn't do things, uh, you know, by the seat of his pants. He studies this. I mean, he's a very uh, a thoughtful guy. He's a very thorough guy when it comes to making business cases for everything that he's doing, whether it's buying a hockey team uh, or, you know, the, the business, the transportation business in which he's done so well at as well. So if he's, if he's put pen to paper and said, this is going to be my proposal, you've got to know that there's going to be some research behind it. Can I throw one more thing at you, Bill? Yeah. And that is, and I may have said this with you on the, on the air before, I didn't realize this until recently, that Lime Ridge Mall is the number one taxpayer in this city. Yeah, it is. Which was, was, was a shock to me. So the question, the other question that I think council has to look at seriously is, the Ernst & Young report pointed out a bunch of spin-off benefits and other things that would grow the economy and be a benefit to the city if it was downtown. But is, are those spin-off benefits bigger than the loss of revenue if the, if the mall, which we know that Amazon and other things are cutting into retail, if the mall was to falter and you were to lose that tax revenue, is the amount that you would gain downtown bigger than the amount you would lose if you don't bolster the mall? I know we like to put things downtown, but I don't think that, as I say, as a city, you should have a blind spot to the other areas that so far, maybe right now are doing okay, but you don't want to take for granted because the losses could be significant if in a few years from now, that becomes an issue. I don't know if that would become an issue, but again, it's something I think you have to throw on the table because if that, based on that, that thing, that that's the number one taxpayer, that is an area you cannot afford to let whittle away and let disappear. Well, we'll see how council handles it today, and certainly it's uh, going to be a topic of con consideration, I hope, anyway, for the, the at least the, the next couple of weeks, anyway, as uh, we try to get some numbers crunched on this. Uh, as always, Scott, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again today. Anytime, Bill. Scott Radley. Of course, you can hear him later on tonight, 6 o'clock, right here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Well, uh, we're going to get an update on what's going on in the U.K. with uh, Boris Johnson and uh, the Brexit no-deal uh, proposal that he's got forward. And there seems to be some sort of a revolt going on, actually, in the British uh, House of Commons these days. And uh, we'll get an update uh, from uh, Dr. Andrew Glencross uh, from uh, uh, Aston University in Birmingham, England, uh, just uh, after 10.30 this morning. But we've got our own concerns politically on this side of the ocean as well. Uh, of course, we know that we're heading towards an election in October, federal election. And, uh, well, first of all, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh uh, said that after seeing the Andrew Scheer video that we talked about, uh, about his comments about uh, the same-sex marriage bill that some years ago, uh, Singh says he would never support a conservative minority government, would not help prop them up under any circumstances. Well, yesterday it was Elizabeth May's turn. Uh, she uh, told Don Martin on uh, CTV that uh, if she holds the balance of power and there's a minority government, she won't support any of the parties because of their positions on the environment. Uh, I also want to talk about something else that's going on in New Brunswick, too. And to that end, we want to bring Barry Kay into the conversation. Barry, of course, is a political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Morning, Barry. How are you doing today? Hello. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm just transfixed by what's going on in Britain, too. I'll be listening to the, uh, the, next, uh, the next section that you're, you're doing. I mean, that, that's just crazyville in, uh, in, in the U.K. It certainly makes all, all our shenanigans seem, seem like nothing at all in terms of what's going on in Canada. Well, I know, I, I and, and, it, and it's such a fluid situation, oh. too. I mean, I, as we were talking about it yesterday, we had a, a gentleman from the Nottingham University on yesterday, and easily we started the conversation. I mean, there was a defection, and he lost his majority, and we thought, oh, it was like, uh, so we don't, I don't know what's going to happen over there today. And then 20, 21 or 22 uh, members of the Conservative Party effectively defected. Oh, and, and the irony of all this is, and this will, I'm sure, come up in your next interview, but is that, in fact, they cannot actually have an election, even though, because they now have a, a rule that suggests you've got to have two-thirds of the parliament. To they can't get anything done. They can't get anything passed. They can't dissolve. They can't do anything. Um, anyway, it certainly makes one feel a little more s sober and stable about what's going on on, on this side of the Atlantic, I D guess. Uh, really? Does that, uh, are, we, are we stable now? <laughs> well, relatively speaking. I suppose, yeah. What, what about Elizabeth May's comments? And, and it, I mean, we'll tie that in with Jagmeet Singh saying he wouldn't support Sheer, and I guess that's obviously on philosophical reasons and ethical reasons, I suppose, because of that old video that uh, resurfaced a couple of days ago. But it, it's sort of sounding at this point, Barry, that if we end up with a minority government, uh, we may not have a minority government. These guys may just decide to pull the plug and we'd have another election. Well, yeah, a lot of this is sort of posturing for the... Right now, everyone's sort of looking toward the election rather than after it, and even the things they say they're going to do after the election are subject to change, I suppose. Uh, look, uh, we have some new numbers. It's not... Uh, Laurier is not the only place that's doing seat projections, but we put some new numbers up. Ours, I think, are pretty much in line with the 338 Canada and calculated politics and poll tracker with ZBC. And at the moment, nobody's got a majority. Um, uh, but, and that indeed the kind of numbers we're seeing for the Greens at the moment, and everything can change, uh, these, these numbers are based on, uh, on polls in the, the last half of, uh, of August. Uh, right now we've got the Greens at five or six. Actually, we've got them at five. We had them at six the time before. All of their seat victories are on Vancouver Island. They're going to do very well in Vancouver Island. If they continue to grow, they may have a shot at some other places. But at the moment, um, uh, Elizabeth May is not in the position where she is going to make the margin of difference anyway, because none of the parties, the Liberals are now up, up by uh, 20 seats or more over the, um, over the Conservatives by our projection. And again, the other, the other projections are not too far off of that, give or take. But there's still at least a dozen seats away from a majority, that is the Liberals. Um, the only party that could make a difference in that situation is probably the NDP, although the bloc 
could as well, although that would be very touch and go, and that depends on whether they win an extra seat or lose an extra seat. So at the moment, Elizabeth May is not the pivot. Um, uh, the NDP, of course, has problems, and perhaps we'll talk about that a little bit. There's certainly yeah. been some executive leadership issues under, under Singh. Uh, so it's fine for, uh, you know, for Elizabeth May to talk about her principles. And indeed, the, uh, let me say in British Columbia, where there was a minority government and the Greens ended up being the pivot that allowed the NDP to form the government, they bargained hard and they got a very strong environmental uh, set of, of policies and priorities out of the B.C. government. So there's precedent for the fact that the B, under the right circumstances, I mean, again, I think in, uh, they, they only won two or three seats in B.C., but it was enough to make the difference. Should the Greens be the pivot. That is the difference between a minority government and a majority government for a certain party. Uh, all these things that, um, that Elizabeth May is talking about may very well come to fruition. But at the moment, it's kind of pie in the sky. And for her to suggest that this is the way it's going to happen, or even that the NDP, I don't think the NDP is likely to go with the, um, the Conservatives anyway, and I don't think the Greens are either. And I think the Conservatives understand that for them, uh, they're either going to win a majority or they're not going to be in the government, not for very long, even if they win more seats. And that, that's sort of the, the configuration of, uh, of Canadian politics at the moment. Um, and a lot of things are going to... F- and look, there, one can look at um, uh, Wilson Raybo and Vic- Vancouver Grandville. She could be the pivot <clears throat> because, uh, in fact, uh, under the right circumstances, one or two seats might make the difference. Um, so all, all of this is, is sort of theatrics before the fact. <clears throat> Once the election takes place, we can uh, we'll, we'll see just uh, how how much of this comes true. I don't think anybody should be hold exactly to what they're uh, what they're promising at this point in time. But um, it certainly gets attention. The Greens have had a lack of attention over the years, and indeed, I think in this kind of scenario, Elizabeth May can <clears throat> portray herself as being an important player, and maybe she will be. But that's not at all certain. What about? Uh, I'm glad you brought up the, the numbers, and thanks for the update on that. And we always uh, see what kind of tracking we're going to get uh, from the university. Uh, and you usually pretty much bang on with the, the stuff that we've talked about in past elections. But how much of an influence is the bloc going to be? I mean, you know, Quebec is, is going to be a, a major battleground, I would think, in this election. The Liberals are certainly looking for support there. Uh, the Conservatives think they can win some more seats. I think the NDP had their moment in the sun there under Jack Layton. I'm not so sure they're going to come back anymore. But, but are, are, are the bloc going to be a major force in this election in Quebec? In Quebec? Our, our, our Quebec figures at the moment are um, there's 78 seats. Right now we've got the Liberals with 50. That's almost two-thirds. We've got the Conservatives with 12, which is pretty much where they are now. They, they do very strongly. They perform very well around Quebec City, but only around Quebec City. And there's not, I don't think they're going to lose many seats, but I don't think they're going to make, gain many either. Um, the Bloc, we've got a 13. The NDP, we've got down a 2, and they could easily be 1. There's only one safe seat, I think, in Rosemont that I, I, I think is a likelihood for the, the NDP there. Um, the Bloc's interesting, though, because the Bloc, in fact, is a separatist party, or at least that's what they used to be. And they've kind of been revived kind of now as sort of an empty vessel for people that are unhappy with everyone else, that uh, in Quebec at least, uh, that the Quebec will, the, uh, the bloc would per- perhaps perform it, pre- present itself as a Quebec first party, trying to use whatever leverage it could to get more government spending or whatever for the province of Quebec. Um, there are, the, the, what, the, the real dynamic in Quebec, most seats aren't going to change hands very much from last time, except for the NDP. The NDP had about 15 seats last time. We've got them at the moment down at two, and as I say, I wouldn't be surprised if it was one. So there's about 14 seats. Those seats are probably going to be divided between the bloc and the liberals. I would imagine the liberals will get more of them than the bloc, but they vary. 
Um, and people, I think, are voting for the bloc not because they think that Quebec separation is, is anywhere on the horizon, but because of the fact they don't have confidence in anyone else. And ironically, that's going on in the rest of Canada, too. I think that's got a lot to do with why the Greens have emerged. Mm-hmm. Now, again, the Greens are, doing, are winning more seats than ever, and they will do well in particularly Vancouver Island, maybe the odd other place. I think they have a shot in Guelph in Ontario and perhaps in Frederick. There are some seats one could imagine them winning outside of B.C. Um, but... A lot of people don't really know what they stand for other than the environment, and they have a lot of other, other issues. They're not all left-wing or, um, or right-wing. For a lot of people, the, the um, Greens in English Canada, just as the bloc in Quebec, is just kind of a none of the above. It's kind of a repudiation of the dysfunction they see and the lack of enthusiasm they see for any of the parties. And that's really the underlying story of this election. Nobody has caught fire in the way that Trudeau and the Liberals did last time. Um, and... Um, I, I, the one thing I, I, I think this kind of situation does present itself for real change, something there could be a dynamic during the campaign that could shake things up dramatically, just as we saw last time. But last time, uh, Trudeau was new. Uh, people were much more likely to sort of invest hope and enthusiasm with the, the sunny ways kind of uh, approach that he had, particularly with outreach and generosity toward uh, refugees, which emerged as an issue during that campaign. At this time, I don't think people are going to be voting for Trudeau positively. For not, not, I don't mean, look, there's always hardcore liberals, hardcore conservatives, hardcore New Democrats, but they, they aren't enough for the, those parties to win the election. Um, the, the, the swing voters that would make the difference, I think, are probably going to be holding their nose and voting for the least of the alternatives. The liberals will be trying to dirty up the conservatives. The conservatives will be trying to dirty up the liberals. The NDP is less credible than ever because uh, Singh has just not acted as, a, as an appropriate executive. He can't even get candidates nominated in many ridings, it seems, at the moment. That will change a little bit, I guess. Uh, but there isn't a, la- a positive enthusiasm for anybody as we go into the campaign, and we're less than two months out now. So, again, I think it's, it's going to be a very negative campaign. Um, and it's a campaign where there may very well be issues that sort of change the dynamic. Somebody may very well win a majority, although at the moment that doesn't seem to be in the cards when we look at the, the polling figures we've got from the last few weeks. Barry, what's going on with the NDP? And, and I'll, I'll tie that into the story that you just referenced a couple of minutes ago out in New Brunswick, uh, where there's basically a mass resignation of, of NDP party members and executive uh, that said they're going over to the Green Party. Uh, the, the undercurrent that we're hearing in our reporting is that a lot of it has to do is that they don't think that they can get elected when their leader is a guy who wears a turban. I mean, uh, that's that's blatant racism, certainly, but it's, uh, it, it seems to substantiate the rumors I think we've been hearing for months about insurrection in the ranks ever since he took over the party. Yeah, although and there's the suggestion that he never went to New Brunswick, and maybe he didn't. Um, look, uh, the NDP was never winning any seats in New Brunswick anyway. They've never won any seats in a federal election in New Brunswick. They've had the odd success provincially. Um, they weren't going to win. They weren't going to win any seats in New Brunswick in any case. The Greens could have a shot. Now, the riding of Fredericton, where the university is, is the one is probably the Greens' best hope, and that's a seat that they. The Greens emerged provincially, and the Greens may, in fact, uh, may do better than we expect at the moment. And again, we don't have them winning anything um, in the east, and frankly, anything outside of uh, Vancouver Island at the moment. But that 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 can change as well. Um, Apart from all of that, apart from the fact that they weren't going to win eight seats under any circumstances in New Brunswick, they have an, a, a shot in a seat in Newfoundland, St. John's East. They're running the uh, Jack Harris is running again. He went, lost very narrowly last time. That's the one shot the NDP might have a chance in in, in Atlantic in Atlantic Canada. But there's something wrong with regard to his ability, to, when I say he, I'm talking about Singh now, ability basically to make executive decisions. He's antagonized a lot of people. 
um, in, in, in terms of his, his priorities, for both in policy but particularly interpersonal management. He certainly antagonized the Saskatchewan party. The NDP is probably going to lose the seats they hold in Saskatchewan now, in part because of a dust-up he got in with one of the local members who had been attacked, who had been accused of um, uh, sexual harassment. Maybe there's substance to it, maybe there's not. Uh, the NDP is not going to have a great election. They're going to lose close to half their seats, maybe more. In Quebec, they're going to virtually get wiped out, except for one or two. But they are not going to be wiped out entirely. If, in fact, there was no NDP, no bloc, somebody would get a majority. And I don't think at the moment that's, that's likely to be the case. I, I still think the NDP will probably end up in the low 20s. In fact, we got them at 25 in this last projection. Um, and and there, there's a number of seats in Ontario where they could very well pick up. Kenora is one. There's several in the Toronto area, Danforth, Davenport, Parkdale. I'm not sure they're going to win all of those. But there are, there's actually opportunity for the NDP to gain a few seats in Ontario. Uh, BC, they're probably going to lose seats, uh, again, particularly to the Greens. Um, it's, it's not over for the NDP, but this has not been a particularly auspicious display. And I think Singh was a mistake, not because he wears a turban, but because, in fact, there are interpersonal issues. It seems I don't know what they all are. I know people in the party who thought that he was a terrific presence in the Ontario caucus. But he doesn't seem to have the management, leadership management skills that allow him to interact well and get other people to, to, to work efficiently. Um, my hunch is, if, if this is what plays out, I don't claim to predict the future, uh, only to talk about projections of the recent past. That's what the, these numbers are based on, on the August figures. But um, I, I, I do think the NDP is going to be looking for a new leader after this election. Is that is that a skill that you can develop, though? I, I mean, the, every party leader, as they took over, whether it's Justin Trudeau, Andrew Scheer, or, or Jagmeet Singh, uh, are all going to have a, a learning curve, and, and they're going to stumble from time to time. But it just seems as if Singh just can't seem to get any rhythm. And I, 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 as we know, there were an awful lot of people in the party that didn't like him as the leader right from the get-go. Yeah, and again, it was resentment over the way that um, that Mulcair was dumped. Uh, yeah. Look, let, let us just reflect back with regard to the NDP. Jack Layden, before his great success in in 2011, Jack Layden had three failing elections. So you're right; you have to, you know, you have you put on uh, training wheels on the bicycle before you ride it. Perhaps it's not fair. I do not think this is just racism, although that's not to suggest there aren't elements of racism underneath it. But because the the New Brunswick uh, NDP isn't going to win, isn't going to be shut out because their leader wears a turban, they're going to be shut out because New Brunswick is not natural territory for the NDP. And as I say, they've never won seats there before. I do think that Mulcair would have done better in Quebec in holding some of those seats, yeah. because he's a Quebecois. Then, and, and, and indeed, there's certainly reason to believe that, certainly rural parts of Quebec, that indeed there is resentment among people that look and dress differently. So I'm not suggesting there isn't racism in, in, in Canada as well. But that's not the fundamental problem with Singh and with the NDP. And I, frankly, I don't understand why we are, what, six weeks, six, seven weeks out from an election, and they, they don't have half of their seats, half of their um, um, nominations are not yet filled. I just don't understand how that can happen. And I, I assume it's not all Singh, but it's the people that Singh has surrounded himself with screwing up in one way or another. The NDP is not going to get wiped out in this election. There are places they're probably going to gain some seats, although they're going to lose a whole lot more, remembering they come in with 44. And we've got them, at the moment, a little over half of that. Uh, so it, it's not going to be a good election for them, but it, they, they still, at the moment, could very well hold the balance of power. They're the only party at the moment who I think could make the difference between the Liberals and a majority. The, the bloc has an outside chance of it, depending on how, how things go. But we have, again, uh, not quite two months of events that are going to trans, transpire that are going to very much determine this. Uh, the... the the bottom line of everything I'm saying is right now it looks like a minority government, but it's potentially quite fluid. A lot of things could happen if lightning strikes in the way lightning struck for the liberals. Remember, the liberals went at this time 
I guess, uh, four years ago, the Liberals were still running third. Yeah. They ended up not just winning, but winning with a majority. I may have mentioned this story to you before, uh, I forget, but I remember early on in the campaign, uh, even when the NDP was first and the Liberals were third, suggesting I wasn't confident who was going to come first, second, or third. The one conclusion I would have suggested four years ago is that I was confident nobody would win a majority. That I would, well, we know what happened. They did win a majority. <laughs> so for me to suggest that I know where the world's, what the world's going to look like on, uh, on October 22nd, I really don't. But I think there's, I'm not even saying there's going to be a lot of change, but there's certainly the possibility of it. Absolutely. Barry, as always, thanks for this. Great talking with you Happy today. To talk. I'll be listening to the next item. Thanks again. Barry Kay, of course, from Wilfrid Laurier. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A high drama and, um, well, more than a little theater. In the British House of Commons yesterday, uh, as, uh, well, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, uh, lost a very important vote, uh, which he thinks uh, may send them towards an election, but there's a, a tricky little thing called a piece of legislation uh, that could get in the way of this. And this is a, a very fluid situation over in London right now, uh, changing almost uh, by the hour. And uh, it's it's important stuff, obviously, because we're talking about the Brexit exit and, and whether or not they're going to be a Brexit no deal uh, or whether there's even going to be a general election. Joining us to try to sort all this out is uh, Dr. Andrew Glencross, senior lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Aston University uh, in Birmingham. Uh, Andrew, thanks again for the time. Great to have you with us today. Pleasure. Uh, interesting, interesting dynamic there yesterday with uh, Boris Johnson's speech, and of course we'll talk about the vote and and, and what the uh, the implications of that are going to be. But uh, it was fascinating to watch him trying to channel his best Winston Churchill, I guess, to try to to get people on his side with the "I will never surrender" speech. Uh, I, I don't know how it didn't go over very well, I guess, in the House of Commons as as he lost the vote anyway. He certainly did lose that vote, and that's an ignominious start to lose the first vote under his um, premiership. But of course, as well, it's very in- insensitive, you could say, to start talking about a surrender document which is when you have the anniversary, 80th anniversary of the declaration of war um, against Germany as well in 1939. The, uh, the comparison, and I guess the, 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 the parallel that he was trying to draw uh, with the speech uh, it was, as you say, uh, very much along with the, the speech, the, uh, the I will never surrender speech that Churchill delivered, uh, you know, when the, the parliament at that time, or at least some of the parliamentary leaders, were insisting that he go and start negotiating a peace uh, with Germany at that time. Uh, and he's he's using that same analogy with the, the bill that uh, the rest of them, at least the majority of, of the MPs in, in the Commons, want to do right now, uh, and suggesting that what they're asking him to do as prime minister now is to go to the EU uh, with a white flag and, and surrender and simply say, look at what can we need to do here. Is, is that is that an apt analogy, really? Well, it's certainly one that he hopes is going to be enough to swing the public, the public that is outside Parliament behind him. But the problem is that in Parliament, the question that's been raised today by Jeremy Corbyn is, is he actually doing any negotiating? Because you can only really convince the public that that message about surrender is true if you're in the midst of actually negotiating. And the problem is it doesn't look like this current government is doing much negotiating at the moment with the EU. Well, he's pretty much decided that he wants a, 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 a no-deal Brexit, and if that's the case, then I guess he figures, why would I even bother negotiating? That's true, but he still has been on the record from the beginning of his campaign to become leader of the Conservatives and therefore Prime Minister by saying he wanted to go for a deal. And he isn't officially yet declared himself to be the leader of a no-deal party as a first priority. That's still only Nigel Farage who's asking for that. 
but that might change still in the near future. Everything is very fluid, as you know. What what does the the vote yesterday actually entail? I mean, you know, he's first of all he lost his majority, and then of course he he lost this vote. Uh, this is a pretty important day right now as to the future of the of this parliament, let alone uh, for the U, the UK and what's going to happen with Brexit. Uh, if if he if he does not get his way, does he try to dissolve parliament? Does he go to the Queen and, and ask for an election? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely a lot to disentangle here, but. The knock-on effect from losing the vote yesterday was to start a process of Boris Johnson seeking to dissolve Parliament, as you say. But that's not so straightforward because the current legislation is such that you need two-thirds of MPs to agree. Now, that could be changed if he gets a legislation passed with a majority to say that that two-thirds can just be done by a majority vote. But, of course, he watched his majority disappear in front of his eyes yesterday. As, as he was speaking, uh, members walked across the floor and, and, show, and joined the opposition, uh, which I guess is a, a, not just a slap in the face to the prime minister. Right? I mean, again, they, that theater element, uh, uh, the, the theatrics involved and the drama involved in this, is it's really stunning to actually watch this happening in front of his eyes as he's going to speak. But uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up about the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, because that that's basically uh, the, the law of the land that basically says you, as a prime minister, cannot arbitrarily decide, that, okay, I'm going to pull the plug and go to the voters right now. So that was a rather hollow threat anyway, wasn't it? It was indeed, and the theatre is absolutely extraordinary because we also think of Boris Johnson as a character who likes theatre. He is over the top. He is prone to these outbursts. But at the same time, he didn't seem to handle it very well yesterday and nor today at Prime Minister's Questions time. So in fact, calling an election, if he does get that through by overturning, for instance, the Fixed Terms Parliament Act, it could be a very risky move. He might melt down a bit like Theresa May, even though his personality on the outside is very different, it would seem. Speaking of, of threats, one of the other ones that, of course, he tried to hold over a number of his MPs, the disgruntled MPs anyway, uh, over the last couple of days, Andrew, uh, was to basically boot them out of the party and said, look, if, if you don't support me, uh, then you will not be a candidate in any election and you won't be a member of this caucus. Uh, with the, the way that the vote ended up yesterday, a number, of course, of conservative MPs voted against Boris Johnson. Uh, is, 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 is he going to follow through on that now? The process is in motion to have the whip removed from them, which means that technically they can't be counted as part of his um, majority either. So, in fact, his majority has actually further decreased over the course of the last um, 24 hours. And he's also in the process then of having them or trying to have them deselected. But that could also mean a clash between local party associations who want to keep their MP, for instance, and the national party structure that might have instructions to deselect them. And that is really um, an unprecedented type of civil war within the Conservative Party, because we're talking about some big weights from past cabinets as well here, and, of course, the grandson of William Churchill himself. Yeah, that was one of the one of that was part of the irony, I guess, yesterday with the with yeah. Boris Johnson channeling Winston Churchill and, and Churchill's grandson, of course, Nicholas Soames, is sitting there listening to this whole thing. By the way, I mean, he voted against Johnson on that motion, but as you mentioned, so did a number of other high profile people like Rory Stewart and and uh, Philip Hammond uh, voted against Johnson in this situation. I uh, I'm wondering if he's going to cut off his nose to spite his face. If I mean, if he tries to discipline a gentleman of that stature, uh, he's probably going to lose more support within the caucus, isn't he? And he's certainly going to have trouble 
trying to reach out as supposedly a moderate force in the Conservative Party. He mentioned that at Prime Minister's Question Time today, saying that he is the opposite, in a sense, of Jeremy Corbyn. He is the leader of a moderate party. But in fact, his actions seem to be pointing in completely the other direction. So when it comes to appealing to a wide section of voters, these moves are also very hazardous. Losing the vote is one thing. But to actually lose a vote that's actually going to cause the government to fall, that pretty much, ha- it has to be a financial bill, doesn't it? It depends on on what um, he prepare, he's prepared to put in front of the House. And of course, the opposition, by convention, can also call a vote of no confidence, and the government has to um, bring that forward if it so requests. But Jeremy Corbyn is trying to avoid falling into a perceived trap here, because the priority is still to try and get the no-deal Brexit eliminated, the threat of that eliminated, before then coming to a potential general election. But it's really a very fluid situation. Well, how does Corbyn react to this, though? That's an interesting aspect of this whole thing, Andrew. Uh, clearly, he'd love to have an election because he wants to be the prime minister. Uh, but at the same time, he, uh, he, he, this, this October 31st deadline is looming there. And uh, Where are his priorities right now? Is, is it to deal with Brexit or is it to, to get rid of Boris Johnson? Well, within his inner circle, there's been a constant battle about whether to prioritise getting into power or dealing with the Brexit mess. And at the moment, it seems as if, in alliance with some of the other opposition parties, the priority is now shifting towards dealing with the Brexit mess in terms of at least ruling out the no deal and then getting round to thinking about a general election. Although there's still a third option, which is if there's a vote of no confidence and that goes ahead, and Boris Johnson then has to resign, there's the possibility that without a general election, the Queen could ask Jeremy Corbyn to actually become Prime Minister if he commanded a majority in Parliament, which is possible, even without an election, given all these defections, given the breakdown of the Conservatives. That's a, an interesting aspect and a very important part of the parliamentary process that I think we tend to forget an awful lot of the time that, well, if a government falls, that they automatically get an election call, that, that the Queen in this particular case would actually go to the opposition leader and simply say, can you form a government? Uh, do you think those discussions are actually taking place behind closed doors in the parliament buildings right now to see whether or not Corbyn's got that sort of support? I think that it would be the natural outcome, if they're not discussing it at the moment, certainly the natural outcome that if the opposition parties, with the help of some, in a sense, marginalised conservatives, can actually bring about eliminating the no-deal threat, then the next move potentially is to think, could there be an alternative government to actually start a different kind of negotiation and reset relations with the EU? Is the EU open to negotiation at this stage, Andrew? The EU is going to be increasingly puzzled by what on earth is going on, because Everything seems to be playing out in the House of Parliament, but at the same time, there needs to be some discussion, some dialogue with Brussels, and that seems to have broken down at the moment. So on that basis, the EU is really awaiting further, in a sense, clarity from the British side of things, but the deadline is ticking, and it's not going to just simply extend the deadline on Brexit unless something changes in Parliament. Well, and that would ensue if, in fact, there was any negotiation or any conversation going on. And the insinuation I heard yesterday from Jeremy Corbyn is that, look, at Prime Minister, you haven't done anything. You said you were going to have some negotiations with Brussels, but you haven't done that yet. Uh, but that has to be the first step. Is there any possibility 
that Johnson might just just give in and say, okay, fine, I'll talk to them, I'll negotiate, I'll ask for an extension? If he did, he would really have his tail between his legs, and it would um, obviously set Farage off against the Conservative Party big time. And so it seems like that really wouldn't be a move that would be... um, that he would be able to countenance with Boris Johnson. It would really be the end of any remaining credibility. And, of course, a lot of people suggest he doesn't have much left anyway. Well, uh, this is a guy that has been lobbying for the, the, the job of a leader of the Conservative Party and lobbying to be the Prime Minister for years now, uh, probably ever since David Cameron stepped down some time ago after the, the first referendum, of course. Uh, is there a possibility, then, if uh, if there is a, a change there? I mean, Johnson's got to love being in, in, in that position. I mean, he wanted to be the prime minister probably all his life. But is, is he the sort of guy, though, Andrew, that will say, okay, I'll do whatever it takes to keep this job? Or is he the principled enough to say, no, this is my stand, and if I lose the job, I lose the job? Well, it might not be up to him. It might not be even a question of his principles, because he's got into power by, in a sense, trying to pull out all the stops going against David Cameron, going eventually against Theresa May as well. So he's got few allies left in the traditional sense, in the traditional wing of the Conservative Party. So he's actually marginalized himself. So if he doesn't have the support of the public, then his space within the Conservatives is actually quite hollow by this stage. So he might be forced out on that basis. Do the Conservatives look at that now and say, excuse me, Excuse me. Uh, did, did, hey, uh, maybe we need to consider our leadership options at this stage. I mean, we were talking earlier about uh, about people like Rory Stewart and others that uh, were rumored to be involved in, and maybe interested in leadership. And obviously, Johnson was the, the guy that ended up winning this whole thing. Uh, is there a little bit of buyer's remorse going on with the conservatives now? Well, the real the acid test, of course, would be a general election. But the question is, if it comes to a general election, how will Boris Johnson fare with his personality and his policies, especially towards the EU. Rory Stewart, as you mentioned, is a much more likely candidate to get votes in places like London, in Scotland even. Boris Johnson has alienated the kind of voters that you find in the big cities, in Scotland as well. And so on that basis, if he doesn't win, then the Tory party will be very quick to dispatch him because all they want at this stage is a winner. What about the public's attitude towards uh, Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, he's he's being painted out, obviously, by not just Boris Johnson, but even before that by Theresa May as a radical and not the sort of person that you really want running the U.K. at this particular time. Uh, but he seems to be about the only alternative at this stage. If, they, if they've if they turned on Boris Johnson, uh, does Corbyn have popular support? Would people hold their nose and vote for him? Or uh, is, is he even something that the, the, the voting public would actually consider as an alternative? Well, his numbers when it comes to personal leadership skill qualities and how the British public evaluates those are very low. And he suffered in the period since the 2017 election. Those numbers have fallen quite sharply. But at the same time, if he has a convincing message on Brexit, some of his other policies are actually quite popular. Policies about changing the basis of taxation, trying to have policies to reduce the number of people who have to rent houses at a huge cost. So those things could work for him. 
I mean, because labor has formed governments in the past, uh, but uh, if you look at people like, well, Tony Blair or even going back to Wilson as, as, as prime minister, uh, they, they were much more moderate and, and actually maybe taking the, the Labor Party a little more towards the middle. Uh, Corbyn seems to be somewhat more of a, of a, well, to use the term that Boris Johnson used, as a radical like that. So uh, can they set that part of Jeremy Corbyn aside? I mean, he was always considered to be somebody who was kind of on the outside looking in. And uh, I'm wondering just what the public's perception of that guy as a prime minister might be. Well, that's that's absolutely key because his policies are much more popular than he himself is as a leader. And so on that basis, the Labour Party faces a real paradox about having the right policies but the wrong leader at, the, at this current moment. And especially because he's been associated with lukewarm support for the EU at best. And that's why... If as a change of policy when it comes to perhaps offering another referendum on EU membership, there might be more voters willing to give him a go on the basis of saying that if he's less radical about the EU, maybe we can also put in place some a change of direction at the national level while still solving the EU issue that the Tories don't seem to be capable of doing. Andrew, is this going to be resolved uh, in the next couple of days? It just seems as if we're getting to a crisis point right now, and, and something's going to have to happen. I mean, the, the pressure build-up here over the last couple of weeks has just been almost insurmountable. It's a bit like watching Theresa May, but now on steroids, because we seem <laughs> to have the same kinds of dynamics, structural issues with the negotiations, the idea that a change of leadership could alter all of that and unlock the negotiations now being proved, I think, wrong. And so on that basis, I think things are going to come to a head and evolve very quickly so that we should have some clarity, certainly by the end of September. Uh, which gives them plenty of time, obviously, before that October 31st deadline then to try to resolve this or at least get some discussions going, I guess, with, with Brussels at that stage. Uh, I, I just got to throw this out here because every time we have this discussion about Brexit, uh, th- somebody always throws about the idea of, well, maybe there should be a second referendum. Is, th- is that even under consideration by anybody out now or is, th- is the, the horse out of the barn? Well, back in April, one of the um, things that Theresa May was still talking about was to try and actually have a referendum on the terms of the deal, if the deal had actually been passed by Parliament. She was willing to countenance an amendment to say that the terms of the deal should be put to the people in a vote. So I can see that still re-emerging if by the end of this month we have a situation where the negotiations are properly started again or where we know that there's going to be a general election. These things are still going to be likely to come up. Andrew, uh, it's it's fascinating to watch the the political process as it uh, unfurls itself, of course, over the last couple of days. It's always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Absolute pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Dr. Andrew Glencross, of course, from uh, Aston University in Birmingham. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.